Welcome to another episode of the ADHD Families Podcast. I am so happy that you are here. Today I have the incredible Chrissy Davies. Now she is a sought-after speaker, an author, a child behaviour specialist and an educational advocate and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to hear a little bit about Christy's journey uh, and also what she does and why she does it, um, how she helps her beautiful families. And then we are going to narrow in on the educational advocacy piece. How can we help our beautiful kids in the school system? I'm so excited to share you this episode. I know it's one that's going to bring massive value and help you along your journey of supporting our gorgeous kids. And we're also going to chat at the end about Chrissy's new book, which you can abs- would absolutely love for you to share with your beautiful kids. And you're going to see that she has a beautiful, positive outlook and lots of practical tools for us to help our wonderful children. Let's get to it. Hello, I'm Sharon Collin, and you are listening to the ADHD Families Podcast. I am a mum of three beautiful boys with ADHD. I love being a mum, but my home life was absolute chaos and the stress of daily life had a terrible effect on my health. My husband had so many horror-filled stories of growing up with ADHD that I decided I wanted to change the experience for my little boys. So I got to work and I systematically changed and streamlined my family's lives to suit the ADHD brain. And now that I have my family on track, I want to help yours. Do you want a life with your beautiful kids that is more functional, fun, and full of joy? Let's explore together the wonderful and sometimes wacky world of raising kids with ADHD. Welcome, Chrissy. I'm so excited for our chat today. Hello, me too. So lovely to see you and meet you in real life rather than just on the gram. (laughs) I know. This is the best part about having a podcast, actually, is I get to interview really cool people that I would love to talk to in real life. Um, So it opens lots of doors that way. Now, I would love for the people listening or watching this podcast for you to tell them what you do and why you do it. It's a tricky question. It's very loaded, that question, because I do so many different things. But the core, my elevator pitch is I'm a child behaviour expert who specialises in supporting parents and educators about how to understand the world through a child's lens. But I have a passion and particular interest in ADHD and anxiety in children because I'm loving and raising two of my own gorgeous little humans. Um, So I'm in the trenches with you as well. But I also just have 25 years of knowledge and experience. I was an educator for 15 years, predominantly working in specialist settings, um, working with the quirky kids, the kids that didn't fit the mainstream education, the ones that, you know, the ones who, what's that saying? One of my favourite saying, the kids who need the most love ask for it in the most unloving of ways. <laughs> sure, we can relate that to our own children. And I just was really compelled to reach further and higher in my business. I've always been quite driven as a professional had a goal. I wanted to be a principal one day. Um, But now I just find myself using my knowledge and my philosophy and my lived experience to support adults out there in the universe, just to understand how kids think, talk, walk, operate, move through the world. You know what I mean? Because I don't know about you, you've obviously got three kids as well, but 
there are still so many negative perceptions out there in the community about kids and they are actually flipping awesome when you understand how they work, <laughs> right? Um, and I think a really big part of my work is, you know, the, the reason why people are drawn to me, I suppose, is my positive outlook in understanding that, yeah, we have really hard days with our kids. That's part of the journey, but it doesn't define us and it doesn't define our families. And the more we can learn to ride those waves like a pro surfer <laughs> and not get dunked every time life throws a curveball at us, then we are winning, you know? I love that so much. And I we are going to be talking about riding those waves a little bit later in the podcast as well. So I'm really interested to hear, um, you know, some strategies about that too. So tell me a little bit, you did touch on it there about your own family's journey. Can you give us a bit of background? Yeah, for sure. So um, most both of my beautiful kids are actually adopted. It's a bit of a story there, but we'll save that one for another day. But Anyway, as many adopted um, and permanent care children we find in our community um, down the road often can start to present with some complex behaviours due to the trauma that they've experienced or their adverse life, you know, childhood experiences. Um, and me being me, having the knowledge that I had and having had supported so many other children, I just very naturally used all of my trauma-informed philosophies and practices and growth mindset and positive language and unconditional regard and reciprocal relationships, you know, all of these amazing skills that I had with my own kids and obviously got really incredible results with them and was able to support their brain functioning. But, oh, my goodness, did the wheels well and truly fall off for me too once we hit formal learning? Um, and I know that we're going to talk about that today in the podcast because that is a really big part of my work, the educational advocacy piece around um, navigating the school experience for our ADHDers because both of my kids also really struggle in their educational setting. We're on our third school, if it makes anyone feel any better. <laughs> Finally found the right fit. Um, you know, and I talk to a lot of my families and clients about this. It's, you know, a lot of, you know, schools and professionals and therapists, they work for us. And so if they're not the right fit or they're not the right people, then we get to choose about, you know, the kind of people that we invite into our life to be a part of our village, um, which I think is so incredibly important because unfortunately that the, the closest school or our zone school, because I'm in Victoria, is not always the right fit for our kids. And so how do we navigate that? You know, we talk about not putting square pegs into round holes, but yet as a society, that's what the system does for families. Oh, let's dive into that a little mm. bit deeper, because I think this is something that, you know, is a big topic in our community. We all want the best for our beautiful kids. We all have to like work and do life and it's great. Um, you know, we want our kids to develop socially and have a good time at school. But for a lot of our beautiful families, we can have some pretty dark days. And I'm sure people on this podcast have heard mm. me say this before. My only goal for school for my beautiful boys is to get them through it with their self-esteem intact mm. that's my only goal um so we're lucky we've been supported and we've um you know been the school have been quite open um you know not as much with high school but definitely with primary school um so I am really curious to hear what you guys like a little bit of your take on that how mm. can we better serve 
you know, mm. get um, collaborate with our schools, mm. um, ensure our kids are having a positive experience at school mm. as much as possible, help them socially in school. Talk about some of that advocacy work that you're doing. I mean, there's so much that our kids have to navigate in an educational experience and, and so many of our ADHDs do struggle with relationships and social skills, which we know is part of, you know, their disability, if people are comfortable using that word. I like to use that word because, you know, I'm, I am obviously in the space and talking about it a lot. And one of the things we're campaigning for is to get ADHD recognised on the National Disability Insurance Scheme mm. because, let's face it, there are so many kids out there who are not getting the supports and the therapies that they need due to, you know, financial difficulties for families. It's a, it is a lot of out-of-pocket that, you know, families have to find for our kids. And so I really advocate for our community to use that word, disability, because, you know, ADHD is fluctuates on any given day. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges of life, living as an ADHD and an ADHD family is we don't know what we're going to get on any given day. You had those days where you open the door and you're like, oh, what's goes coming out today? Um, you know, and I think that's one of the very real challenges that a lot of people don't understand about ADHD is, you know, some days our kids are just winning at life. And being an invisible disability, you know, people wouldn't even know that they have ADHD or that it impacts their life significantly. And then on other days, it is literally like they don't know what day it is. They can't find anything. They can't put one foot in front of the other. And they need so much empathy, patience and support. And I think that's, I mean, I don't know what you, how you feel about with your own kids, but I feel like at times that is one of the biggest misconceptions around our kids, you know, because of the fluctuation and because of all the behind the scenes work that we do as families to keep our kids ticking along. And then they go, go, they go to school, for example, and they don't have the same wraparound or they don't have the same supports or the same scaffolding or you know, the same positive view of the understanding of the behaviour that is presenting in that setting. And so that is why you already touched on, to me, that relationship and the way that we communicate and support each other, teachers and parents, and come together collectively with a mutual respect and, respect mm -hmm. and understanding for the role that we both play in the lives of that child Oh, it's paramount. And when you get it right, oh, my goodness, it is literally life-changing. And obviously I'm doing a lot of this work. Even after this podcast interview, I've got two educational advocacy calls with families who are just at loggerheads with the school environment. And as someone who has lived through that, it is so stressful. It is so traumatic on our kids. It is so... It in, impacts your life in such a way. And for me, it was deeply personal as an educator because I was I was just so heartbroken for my son in particular, you know, that I'd spent my entire life advocating for other kids and, you know, educating other people's kids. And then when it was my turn, <laughs> no one would listen to me. Nobody, I mean, I was just an annoying, no, nosy, um, noisy, loud parent. It didn't matter how much knowledge I had. The wall was up. Don't tell us how to do our job. We know what's best for our students. And I'm here to tell you right now, any educators who are listening to this podcast, you don't know our kids on the same fundamental level as we do. We have been on such a journey with our kids 
from, you know, birth to, you know, traversing the toddler years, which I'm sure many parents would agree as with ADHD kids, it's a very challenging time period in life when everybody keeps telling you, just give it a few more years or it's developmentally normal or, oh, it's just boys, boys do risky things. Well, yeah, this is just a little bit more than that, right? <laughs> we can see you nodding along there and I'm sure other people will. And this is the things that we're constantly told. And then we wonder why there is such a juxtaposition and clash in values, I think, when our kids hit formal learning where they're expected basically to be neurotypical. And then all of a sudden they get all this messaging about that they're not good enough or they're not following school values or that they get suspended or we don't accept that kind of behaviour here, you know, and all those negative things that our kids actually hear. Um when if we could actually be having those conversations and this is why I'm actually also a really big advocate for getting kids identified and on treatment plans before school right (laughs) which you know I work with so many families Sharon as well which is another big part of my educational piece is empowering them okay when you get into that pediatrician appointment that you have waited 18 months for (laughs) this is what you're going to say this is what you need to bring and this is what you are how you're going to feel empowered to you know, um, advocate for yourself as a parent because I feel like we are just losing so much time Mm. with our ADHDers because we're waiting to see how they go at school. Yeah. So tell me that is, yeah, I resonated with all of that (laughs) because, you know, I'm sure that the people listening and myself included have gone through and walked those similar steps, like the waiting for the appointment, then getting into school and thinking that all this, you know, wonderful support is going to happen but then quickly learning that ADHD doesn't qualify for NDIS doesn't qualify for any um, real in-classroom support Um, you do get and and typically they polarize teachers right so you'll get a teacher who absolutely adores ADHD and how their brain works and be able to lift them up but the next year you might get one that just doesn't know how to work with an ADHD and so you've then got to go in and work with that teacher and really get them on site and collaborate and educate. And, you know, you and I have the position of being, you know, having gone through it but also having the education in it. But for the, the mum and dad at home who is still working out how to do it themselves, it can be such a tricky time. Mm. Um, and you get this negative feedback from the school a lot of the time, like, oh, they haven't had a good day today, you know, they've had a hands-on incident, blah, 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 blah. And you can end up feeling like you don't want to go into the school. It's a negative place to go into because every time you go in there, you get a bit of negative feedback. So I would love for you to give a little bit of advice to that parent who's perhaps, you know, looking at their beautiful child thinking, oh, my goodness, this is this is where I'm at. I don't want to go into the school. My child is not doing well there. Um, you know, what, what can they do? Well, this is what's really difficult about advocacy, I think. And, you know, as somebody whose son was diagnosed at the age of four, <laughs> because and my paediatrician actually said to me, look, if it was any other parent, I probably would have you know, got them to go away and do a parenting course. And this is why, you know, I know you've got courses as well, but this is why I always say to families who are waiting for an appointment, upskill yourself, do an online course, get a, work with a, a professional, which I write letters from my clients as well, 
you know, that just gives them a little bit extra cred in terms of they're not just coming in, not understanding what they're advocating for. Mm. And honestly, I have got so many families over the line in the first appointment because of the way that I've empowered them to know, okay, this is what they're going to ask you. This is what you need to bring. And if you sort of look at it in the same way in education, I mean, I, I, I honestly just, because I knew so, I mean, I thought I knew a lot about ADHD <laughs> until you have two kids with ADHD and then you are also, you also uncover your own diagnosis and now you have three people in your family with ADHD that yes, we all have similar characteristics, but oh my goodness, we are also different. And once again, the complexity of the disability, you know, um, the spectrum or the range and the capabilities and the way that ADHD presents in classrooms and in families is so varied and that's what is so difficult for educators and I think wearing my educator hat I have so much empathy and so much compassion for our educators because I work a lot in schools and I see how stressed they are I see mm. how hard it is for them to I think we're saying on average now when I'm in Victoria, so obviously speaking from a Victorian lens, but on average, you know, we've got between five and eight neurodivergent kids in any classroom with no extra support. And we've got these incredible teachers who are showing up every day trying to meet the needs of all these kids. And so I think first and foremost, I think we have to come at it as parents that teachers are human beings. Mm -hmm. Teachers are showing up every day doing the best that they can with the knowledge that they have. Some of them are absolutely amazing and they get it straight away and there are others who may never get it <laughs> and there are others who are willing and open to learning and walking alongside. And this was one of the real challenges we had in, in one of our educational settings was there was just no commitment to walk alongside us as we figured some of this stuff out. And I think that that's one of the things I often talk to schools about and educational leaders about is we don't expect you to have all the answers. We know that some of this is new information to you. We know that you are going to have pre-service teachers and, you know, teachers on your staff with very little experience who don't understand all of this stuff yet. Heck, there are teachers with 25 years of knowledge who still don't understand all of this stuff, right? Because it is so complex and that's okay. But what we do need from schools is a commitment to walk alongside us as we navigate some really tricky territory with our kids, whether that is the, you know, the diagnostic process because we know that we cannot get the ADHD um, identification over the line without the school's input unless we get it earlier, people, which, you know, which is one of the things I advocate for because it's almost like, well, if we come into the school with that information, then teachers are like, okay, well, we know what we're dealing with here, right? And I feel like in education, there is still a, a big perception around, well, if we get the diagnosis, then we know what's actually going on. Before that, it's just a lot of grey area. Nobody really knows, you know. Um, and as we're trying to navigate this stuff, and one of the biggest things that have shifted for us as a family in our new, incredible, trauma-informed, supportive, therapeutic school is the wheels still fall off, Sharon, occasionally, with my, especially with my little guy, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, my daughter has her days as well because they are neurodivergent. That is their life, right? Ups and downs. 
the way that we are held as a family and we are checked in on and that that unconditional positive regard every single time the child leaves the school grounds knowing that they are always welcome back tomorrow's a new day we wipe the slate clean today was really tricky but we know that we're all going to come back tomorrow and give it another crack you know the messaging the subliminal messaging and unconditional regard that is um, delivered to our family is literally everything you were talking about. It's like, and I've actually said, you know, to, to my son's teacher last year, I don't care if he doesn't do anything academic on the days when it's very difficult for him, as long as he still comes home with his self-esteem intact and his relationship with you and his peers is paramount. At the end of the day, and I think this is where sometimes as parents, we have to shift our expectations on those days because I think a lot of people still look, I mean, don't get me wrong, kids come to school to learn. It is an educational organisation that we, you know, hand our kids over to. But at the end of the day, these teachers also have to support a lot of tricky behaviours, a lot of big feelings, a lot of different, you know, social situations with our kids, sensory overload, all of those things. And if we come at it from the perspective that they are doing the best that they can, and if we have that conversation where we say to them, on the days that it's really hard, you have, you're almost like, not my permission, but it's okay for you to just lower demand on those mm, days or adjust that. your expectations around academic output. Let's, I love, absolutely love that. I want to hear from you what some other accommodations you frequently recommend mm. um, because I really love that. That's taking the pressure off the teacher and it's taking Correct. the pressure off the student. Correct. So tell me some other frequent accommodations. That can you I, can I, I will, I'll come to that, but can I just mm -hmm. say, I just want to finish off with that collaboration piece because, mm. and one of the biggest challenges I see in education especially is schools saying we're having problems X, Y, and Z or challenges or blow-ups or whatever in the educational setting, which is where, which is causing the distress or the stress response or the overload, yet parents are expected to pick kids up and they're removed from that environment and they bring them home or whatever happens, you know. Um, and so what I really talk to educators a lot about is, okay, well, if we're having a lot of the challenges in that environment, that is where we need to focus our time and energy in thinking about, okay, why is this child having such a difficult time at school? What are the triggers? What are the sensory overloads? What are the sensory seeking behaviours? What is going on? Is it social? Does this child need some more social support? Or, you know, because what, what it tends to become is, well, it's not my problem, it's your problem. Or there's a problem at school, but then it becomes the parent's problem because they have to pick the child up over and over and over again, right? Which we know means you can't work, you're constantly waiting for the phone to call, you know, um, and so that's where I think having the, being really open and honest and sharing some of the challenges that we have as parents with schools and vice versa is incredibly important because it's not about fixing our kids. We can't fix our ADHDers. It's about coming alongside them and supporting them the best that we can on any given day, hoping that we're getting some education in there, <laughs> you know. Um, there, I mean, there's so many layers to it, as you know, but I just think at the end of the day that communication 
and everybody taking ownership for their role in the responsibility okay so just because our kids are having challenges at school doesn't mean it's the school's problem just because we're having challenges at home and maybe our kids are masking at school schools can't then say well that's a parenting problem do you get what I mean? And I think Everyone's that Everyone's coming together. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It has to be paramount, right? I would like to invite you to our free ADHD Families Festival. During this eight days together, you'll receive three free fun training sessions with me, pretty workbooks to make strategy implementation a breeze, some tools and resources, incredible show up live bonuses, and tips to improve your family's life with ADHD. Not only have I been studying ADHD for the last 15 years, but I also live it every day. I'm going to share my tried and tested strategies with you. These sessions will be fun, engaging, and value-packed. I can't wait to see you there. Um, we're all working together and we never stop having that commitment to each other that we're in it together for the year, especially, you know. And that's what you were saying before. Some years that relationship will feel really easy with certain teachers and then, and then the following year it might feel very difficult. Now, on that piece, for any teachers that, and parents that are listening, that's why I advocate for a two-year cycle in education for our kids. Ooh, I like this. Because relational safety, let's, let's draw it back to the fact that ADHDs have a nervous system disability, right? They're dysregulated a lot of the time. They fluctuate. That key relationship is really important for our kids. And having that relational safety for two years means and and what what really gets me grinds my gears if we can say in education is we rinse repeat rinse repeat rinse repeat we do all this work with these kids and then we go okay see you later hand them over to somebody else and then we start all over again you know and the research actually indicates especially when it comes to behavior that the more consistency and stability we can provide for neurodivergent children and all children in general right which is why a whole school approach to behaviour is so important. And this is one of the other challenges that we see in education, that every teacher is using their own behaviour management system. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's any wonder we see the behaviour go up and down for our kids every year. It's almost like, well, we have to have that settling in period, then they get to build the relationship, and then it's like, oh, you're leaving me. And then, you know what I mean? Like there's so many elements to it. And, and this is what I talk to teachers about because usually by the end of the year they're like, oh, my God, I don't want that kid again. <laughs> but the research indicates that if you had them for a second year, it would be a lot easier the second year because you've already got the relationship, you've got the foundation. You know, I've never thought of that before and I really think that is a very, very valid point. Mm. And so when you understand and you can advocate for that, and schools can accommodate that as well, you know, it's if we've had a child that's had a particularly amazing year with a teacher, it's because they've got a good relationship with them. And it's because that teacher gets their brain. And, you know, and this is one of the biggest, biggest shifts I've seen in the school that we're in now. I, I, I absolutely know that his teachers adore him. Mm. He ain't a problem. They think he's amazing. You know what I mean? And if you're coming to school every day with teachers who think you're amazing, even though the wheels still fall off occasionally, then of course you're going to come home feeling good about yourself. 
it's so but important. The, that but coming back to supports and accommodations, the one that has absolutely moved, that I've seen move the needle for ADHD is especially um, ones that really struggle with that, you know, big blow-ups, is the self-exit strategy, mm. that they are allowed to leave the classroom. They don't have to ask. It's a signal from the teacher, like, <laughs> you know, make, make your way that way, buddy. And that there is a safe space for them to go to or an allocated area, either just outside the learning community or somewhere in the yard or, um, you know, a tree they can climb. I mean, I'm always thinking outside the box, you know. Is there a safe space that they can go to? Because we know that for ADHD, so much of it is about processing time. You probably, you see this with your own kids. We have to have a blow up. They go away. They actually, the brain recalibrates, they process, they come back online and then they come to you. Oh my gosh, mum, I'm so sorry. Right. And so what has, what I have seen in schools work so beautifully. And this is where once again, we have to get our head around that sending kids home and suspending them just keeps ADHD is stuck in the cycle of behavior and shame and, you know, not good enough. And then we try again the next day and then the same thing happens. When we allow children to stay, we first of all give them a safe space to go, to blow up so that they're not throwing chairs and they're not hurting their peers or their teacher. And then we allow them to reintegrate back into the classroom to repair the relationship if they need to clean up the mess, whatever it is that they need to do, restore, they reintegrate back into the classroom and then we just move on, right? And what I see fundamentally in education is that, that at that point, the repair piece is where kids are cut off and they're sent home and they're not given the opportunity to repair the relationship and reintegrate back into the classroom setting, right? And that for me is when the growth happens. That for me is when kids start to move forward because sending them home does nothing, doesn't actually help them move forward and grow and repair and think about how they could do things differently next time. Well, that is just so important. And you're right. You send them home and they just, you ask them, you know, sometimes their short-term memory, they've already forgotten about that thing. They've changed to the setting. They're excited about being home or maybe they've forgotten what's happening. They don't get to have that moment where they, fix things or perhaps they're nervous about going back you know um you're creating this whole extra extra layer of problems and now we know that behavior some of these more tricky behaviors that you have mentioned here um you know like it's communication that we're not coping right in in certain situations or maybe it's impulsiveness or you know whatever is happening for that child for a child that is consistently getting sent home or um you know, under discipline reaction or having hands-on incidences. Um, what do you recommend a parent do? Well, we see a really, I mean, this happened to us as well. It's a term, I don't know if you've heard of this, it's a term called gating where schools continue to suspend children without really trying to think about how they can put some things in place for this child to help them build and stretch their window of tolerance in an educational setting, right? Because if we just keep them out, then well, then well, they, we're not really helping them move forward, right? And this happened to us. We were on an hour a day with no strategy, no meetings, no care team, no how are we going to get back into full time education. And I think this is when this is when we come up against schools that just don't want to. That like our solution is well, we just reduce the timetable or we get you to pick them up, right? 
Um, and so one of the things I advocate for, or we talk about, I talk about with families is slow starts and building up our children's stamina and window of tolerance. And then also reducing at the end of term when our children are hitting cognitive fatigue, right? So, um, make an, 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 once again, we have to be able to support that and navigate that as families if we're working full time. But I also think it's a really big piece for parents about that radical acceptance of that, you know, often our kids actually can't sustain full time education and that's just their brain. Like that's, it's really hard for them, you know. So um, implementing regular mental health days, doing some shorter days or having some rest days or even thinking about the term you know we talk about as teachers don't we term three is notoriously the really hard term teachers are getting burnt out kids are getting burnt out it's a long term um how do we as parents and schools think about and once again tracking behavior so that we've got clear evidence of oh actually around this time last term the wheels started to fall off for this kid so what could we do differently preemptive, proactive, preventative, rather than just waiting for it to all happen again and unravel and then we're sitting there going, oh, my goodness, here we are again. Mm. You know, um, I think that as families, that's where our role is incredibly important to show the support to our teachers because for I don't know about you, but I feel like I, I, I would much rather pick my child up knowing that he hasn't hurt anyone or blown up his classroom or hit his teacher or whatever might happen if it means that I've just got to sneak out and pick him up and bring him home and he can potter around in the playroom or whatever for the afternoon because that's my commitment as a, as a parent of a child with additional needs is that I understand that education is really difficult for him at times, at certain times in his life, right? And so I think part of that expectation for us as families is understanding that our life is not neurotypical and education still is predominantly created for the neurotypical brain we're getting better but I think in my experience parents are fast tracking a lot quicker than the education system can keep up with so we have all this knowledge we have all these skills we know how our kids brains work we know how to support them um, and unfortunately we we can't always have that provided for us in the educational setting you know as much as teachers are trying and as much as schools are trying and that's where i was saying before i have got a lot of empathy for our teachers and so you know i have had this very real and open conversation with my son's teachers like if if you ever get to the point where you call me i know it's for a valid reason if if you ever have to call me to come and collect one of my children i know that you've done absolutely everything you can to try and regulate or reintegrate or keep them engaged. And so, you know, one of those, coming back to that piece you were saying before about reporting to parents, what, what are the things we need to actually hear about? Part of our job as teachers is to manage behaviour as it comes up throughout the day. I don't need to know every little thing that my kid has done, <laughs> you know. Save your time and energy for the big stuff. Did, did they hurt anyone? You know, we don't, obviously, a lot of ADHD is swear, which to me is, you know, minor but annoying because they only do it when they're dysregulated. But in schools, it is still viewed as a very serious offence. You know, um, and I think that often as teachers, it's so incredibly important that we remember that there are so many positive things that happen during the day. 
and often we're catching parents or or we we're, we're meeting teachers at the end of the day when they might have had a really hard day with like five other kids as well you know what i mean and one of the pieces that i advocate for teachers is to is to not report after a hard day bench it process it go home talk to your partner go for a walk like hug your dog whatever it is before you write that email or before you call that parent because i can guarantee you the next day it does not seem as bad you know what i mean or as negative so and that's the same with parents you know if you've if you have a negative experience with a school allow yourself give yourself some processing time because we are human beings we are driven by emotion <laughs> and adhd is you know we are very passionate and can be very reactive at times and so we've also got to understand once again, that piece of we're all doing the best that we can for these kids, you know, and how we speak to our teachers or how we write emails and all those sorts of things are incredibly important. That we're actually thinking carefully about how we communicate. Oh, the power of the pause. Correct. Chrissy, the power mm. of the pause. Mm. Yes, I love that. Now, um, I, you did talk about this at the start. You touched on this about riding the wave mm. um, of the ups and downs of ADHD. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Mm. And Well, I think we sort of touched on it a little bit, but that word fluctuation mm. is, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions about having ADHD because we know that there are so many different factors and the research indicates the two biggest factors that can influence either positively or negatively the trajectory of an ADHD child. One is parenting skills, which is, you know, you and my, our work, <laughs> the way we communicate, our expectations, you know, the way that we um, live life with radical acceptance. And the next one is the teacher, right? So that relationship, which we've spoken about, and those two key pieces are very important to the success of our children. But there are so many other variables, environment, diet the weather i mean i joke about the weather a lot when it comes to adhd because i feel like they are like the weather we never know what day what kind of weather we're going to get you know some days we're like splashing about in our gum boots with a smile on our face and the next we are bunkered down under a weighted blanket not wanting to look or talk or see or feel anything you know and i think that those waves are part of our life they really are. And I and I see this in general parenting anyway too, Sharon. It's like a lot of people just say, oh, I just didn't know it would be this hard. You know, raising children is hard. It come our children are on a growth trajectory. They are their brains are growing rapidly every single day, pushing them towards independence, right? And so there is no way that that is going to be smooth sailing because this, and I don't know about your kids, but we talk about two-week cycles with kids, don't we? <laughs> and when you've got more than one child, they're never in the same cycle at the same time and given ages and stages and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, and I really refute a lot of the information out there. Oh, you know, wait till they're seven or you think it's hard now, wait till they're teenagers. It's like if we just erase all of that garbage from our minds and understand that children's behaviours ebb and flow on any given day because of their brain development, because of their social experiences, because of their lack of understanding about the human world, the one thing in their life that can provide them to have safety and stability is us. 
And then second to that is the school piece. So, you know, the more we can provide that stability and consistency as much as possible, and I feel like for us a lot of it is shifting our own perceptions and expectations around parenting. You know, we we can't parent our kids the same way as Mary Jane three doors down who has three neurotypical daughters. <laughs> You know, do you know what I mean? And I think there's the whole that whole comparisonitis piece. It's like we've just got to stop worrying about what other people are doing. And isn't that what radical acceptance is? It is making a commitment to living a life in a way that you know aligns with one, with what your child's brain needs, but two, having the confidence to go against the majority, right? Um, and I think that I see that very commonly in, in, through the work that I do as well. There is still so much shame. And I think I messaged you after that shame podcast that you did as well, you know, because I've experienced it too. I've felt it, but it's my own emotion to own, right? Um, and that's not our child's fault. That's a piece that we have to own and work through as parents, you know, <clears throat> and this is why I talk about making friends with other ADHD families. Yeah, the kids might fight a bit more, but oh my goodness, there is just no explanation needed, you know, and everybody's just loud and, you know, communicates in the same way and there is not this need to think, to explain yourself or to be like, oh my God, you know, keep it down and, you know, all those sorts of things that we sometimes feel when we're around neurotypical families, I guess, you know. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Oh, I love that so much. And I think mm. I think sort of happiness and being that contentment piece comes from mm. stopping trying to force against the waves Correct. and riding it, like Correct. just dealing the hand that you've been given. Right? We Correct. we don't have to change our hand. I think at the maybe at the start of our family's journey, we put so much uh, effort. And, um, into trying to change everything mm. but really that beautiful piece of radical, radical accepting accepting what it looks like for us uniquely as mm. a family mm. and you know putting the framework of stuff that works uniquely for that family you know to right. make you know not not being trying to force against it all the time and what mm. our kids need if we spend the whole time wishing that it was something different it's very hard to be happy in a place like that or be Correct. content Correct. Um, you know wishing that it was something else or comparing it uh, to another family, especially when, like, most of the time we compare it against things that aren't even realistic anyway. You only see people's highlight reels anyway. Yeah, but it's also, is that family really happier than yours? <laughs> you know? Do you, do you get what I mean? It's like, and that's what I think. I think when you just stop worrying about what other people are doing and you live life with this true, like, almost like deep confidence and knowledge that every every family is doing the best that they can and every family is dealing with different things on different days and everybody has different their own skill set and experiences that we bring as parents to our own parenting experience do you know there are so many variables why would why would we think that all families are the same like mm. it doesn't even make sense to me do you know what I mean um <clears throat> and I think that the piece for me too is I'm just so confident as a parent that I know what my kids need and I'm confident to advocate for them. And I don't really care what anyone else thinks. And I think that, you know, that's a big part of the work that I do because other people feel 
oh, I don't know if I can say that. Or, you know, um, one of my beautiful clients messaged me the other day saying, you'd be so proud of me. I um, advocated for myself when I told my mum not to come over because it wasn't a great time. And she said, you know, a year ago I would have just sucked it up and been then been resentful afterwards, you know. And I think sometimes it's just when you are confident and you know how to advocate for yourself, it's actually really amazing how other people just go, okay, no worries. (laughs) Like nobody actually cares, you know. Now tell me a little bit about your spectacular book that you've written. I'd love to have a chat about that. Well, I wrote Love Me, Love My ADHD because when I, as soon as I started talking about being an ADHDer and the kids and, you know, some of the challenges we're having at school, oh, my goodness, I mean, my business just blew up right because we know there's so much so many families out there that are just crying out for support and education and so I'd written my first book love my brain um uh three years ago now and this was obviously the next book that sort of came out of my incredible creative brain but it's I really wrote it because I wanted to reach more people Sharon you know (laughs) because one-to-one coaching I love it but there's only me and it's you know it's really hard and so that's why I wrote the course and I wrote the book so that I could sort of spread the message out into the wider community. And the book, I mean, you've read the book. Tell me, what did you think? Oh, look, I loved it. And I I love that you've got a little, um, first of all, it's set out really well. Uh, I love that you take us on a little bit of a journey and it's Mm. completely palatable for kids Mm. as well. So I read it to the boys and they all were able to stay engaged and they were recognising all the beautiful positives about ADHD. You bring in that beautiful Um, positive approach that you have and the other thing that I really like is the note to the parents and the educators Mm. at the end so that parents can understand you're also teaching them about ADHD and what's going Mm. on but also educators can understand a little bit what's going on inside the beautiful ADHD brain and so I I really thought it was an incredible book I think you've done a wonderful job thank you and uh, and I'm you know really happy to share it because I feel like it's, it's one of those things that people can read to their kids and it's nice and neuroaffirming and um, help them have that self-awareness um, mm. or for the kids to understand a little bit what, what's going on inside their brain. Correct, too. correct. Yeah. And I think, you know, I talk to my husband about this all the time. It's like when our kids are young, we put all the supports and scaffolding around and, you know, all the things we know, but one day they're going to have to be able to do that for themselves. And the piece of the book around the advocacy is I, this is, I wrote the book as a tool for parents and teachers, but for kids, it's a story about an optimal day or an an optimal life for an ADHD family is if they have all of these things around them, this is, you know, hopefully going to be helpful and set them up for success. But most importantly, we're teaching the new generation, the younger generation, to understand their own brain, to know how to advocate for themselves, to understand what supports or scaffolding they can use because the research indicates that around that university level or when children actually leave home and they, they leave all the scaffolding, that life just falls apart for them because they don't know how to provide that for themselves and people often say that to me how did you get this far being ADHD without medication and yada 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 and it's like it's because I have been supporting and scaffolding for myself for years and I think my husband has accommodated for me at various points let's just put that out there <laughs> as all good partners do but because I had so much knowledge I naturally did it for myself and then I naturally did it for my kids right 
But a lot of people don't know that. And so that's why I wanted to write the books. Like these, all of these things are so important for our kids and our families. And if we can find all of these things or most of these things, um, and the day that you hear your child, and I'll never forget this, my daughter was sitting in the laundry with her little friend from school and they were looking at the book and they were talking about their brains. And my daughter said loud and proud, yeah, I have ADHD. And her little friend said, yeah, and I have autism and my brain does X, Y, and Z, you know, and I thought, wow, this is why I wrote the book. I love that so much. Now, for those who are listening at home and want to know how to find you, and of course, I'll put everything in the show notes as well, but can you tell us where, where we can find you? Of course. So my business technically is Chaos to Calm Consultancy, Chrissy Davies, known as the Child Charmer, which I just love. I um, love yeah, I know. It's so cute, isn't it? Uh, even though I don't really work with kids anymore, but I empower the adults to know how to connect with them. But uh, website, obviously, loads of resources. You can buy the book from the website. I have got quite a few stockers across Victoria as well. Um, Instagram is my favorite platform. I love connecting there with my community. I'm always sharing tips and, you know, just sharing snippets of our life, which is Chrissy Chaos to Calm um, on Instagram. And obviously I've got all the platforms as well, but that's my favorite. So Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Chrissy. I've loved our chat. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I'm so glad you and your boys love the book too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ADHD Families Podcast. If you loved it, please share it on your socials. I want this to start a conversation about ADHD. If you want to make this mum do a little happy dance, please leave a review on iTunes. If you would like to know more about what we do, check out thefunctionalfamily.com. I truly hope that you enjoyed this podcast and you use it to create a wonderful, effective, joyful life with your beautiful children.